This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I am joined by our theology editor, Caleb Lindgren, today. Hi there, Morgan. Glad to be back. Glad you're here, Caleb. Glad that we have survived today. We've made it. It's been a Monday for the Mondays. Oh yes, for the backer books. All right. So, Caleb, what is going on? Who is our guest today? Yeah. So today on the podcast, we have Jose Humphreys, um, who is a native New Yorker, social worker, consultant, and minister with over 16 years of nonprofit experience. Together with his wife, Myra, and a group of others, Jose began Metro Hope Covenant Church, a multi-ethnic church that meets in Harlem's historic National Black Theater. And he also wrote a book that we um, excerpted recently. And in his book, uh, Seeing Jesus in East Harlem, uh, What Happens When Churches Show Up and Stay Put, is all about um, church planning in the inner city. And uh, we wanted to talk to him a bit about uh, some of the economic challenges related to that. Because um, he talks a bit in uh, the excerpt that we were running about uh, gentrification and how that plays into church planting and how that affects how churches might think or not think about their impact on the local communities that they're planning churches in. Don't give it all away, Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jose, how are you? Um, well, I'm well. He did give it all away, but that's okay. You know, that's great. You know, I guess if you wanted to listen to the two-minute version of this, <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing. That's just sort of like this is what we're going to talk about. But I want to hear about the complicated bits. Like, I know <laughs> that this is a thing now, but now I want to hear what does that look like. All right. So you're you're a native New Yorker, Jose. Like, where are you from in New York? That's right. I'm uh, from uh, Manhattan's Lower East Side, otherwise known as Alphabet City, which is now in many ways a gentrified neighborhood as well. And I currently live in, in East Harlem for the last, uh, wow, 18 years. Were you off the F train growing up or the J or the Z? Ooh, um, I would actually have to take a bus to get to the train. So yeah, exactly. So I, I would hit the L train up to 14th Street and then get onto the 4, 5, or 6. Yeah. So, and, you know, taking a bus in New York City is like a, a real spiritual discipline. I mean, you really yeah. <laughs> just have I to hate have some the bus so much. Some type of patience. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. When I was in New York a couple months ago, the F train wasn't going between a couple stops and they were like, free shuttle buses. I mean, free shuttle bus. Like, you're not, I, you would have to pay me to sit on that bus, okay? That's right. That's right. Because it's a social experiment. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're really glad that you can join us today. We actually don't get too many New Yorkers on the show, so it's great to have you here. Oh, glad to be here. And as Caleb teased, you know, our topic today, let's kind of get into it on a bigger level. So in 2011, the New York Times published an article called The Evangelical Squad. This article profiled several church plants in New York City trying to make it in Manhattan. And I'm just going to read a portion of this. In recent decades, the number of English-speaking evangelical churches south of Harlem has grown tenfold to more than 100, So Tony Carnes, a researcher who has studied New York churches since the 1970s. Without fanfare, the newcomers have created networks to pay for new churches and to form church planning incubators, treating the city as a mission field. So this article came out seven years ago, and more recently, these church plants are moving into Harlem and to boroughs and neighborhoods less financially well-off as um, this part of Manhattan that was profiled in the New York Times story. So in his forthcoming book, Seeing Jesus in East Harlem, Jose writes this. The recent boom in church plants in New York City has skewed towards middle-class models that favor the gentry and elite in formerly working-class or middle-class neighborhoods. People bring in particular tastes, often overlooking the history and particularity of long-established businesses where market forces often favor the up-and-coming sensibilities. I've seen how our panaderias have been making lattes for years, yet lack the local support of new tenants in the hood. So these characteristics of New York church planting are part of a larger tension across the country. Dozens of churches are increasingly open up in some of the urban area's most disinvested communities. As they launch, the neighborhoods they inhabit often begin to change, begging the question, are these churches drivers of change in the community or merely swept up into the larger economic and social forces outside of their control? Today on Quick to Listen, we'll be doing a deeper dive into the murkiness that is urban ministry, neighborhood change, and how race and class intersect with church planting. 
Mm. See, that's what I should have said at the beginning. That's that little should. summary. That was nice. There that you was, go. That was. <laughs> Guys, I do it for the compliments, obviously. Um, but before we get into this, because there's always so much to get into, we're going to take a moment just to remind everyone that if you like this podcast, it is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And our July-August double issue is out right now, and it features an interview with World Vision President and CEO Richard Stearns. Do you want to talk about that interview, Caleb? Yeah. So Richard Stearns uh, is retiring from World Vision or has retired as the president and CEO of World Vision. Our news editor, Jeremy Weber, did an interview with him sort of looking back on his time at World Vision and asking some big questions about what, you know, what was your greatest accomplishment? What do you think World Vision and uh, Christian philanthropy needs to continue to do going forward? What is it like to do that kind of work in a very um, charged political atmosphere. Um, a lot of really interesting questions, and his answers, which I don't want to, I don't want to steal the thunder from. A second um, time, <laughs> yeah, second time since that seems to be my my uh, mo today. His answers are fascinating. I think he gives a lot of really interesting insight into the perspective from a leader that kind of has both the thirty thousand foot view, but also the like right there, face to face, shaking hands with folks view on um, how their work affected people. So it's cool and. You know, if you're just like, oh, no, I don't want to read this interview. It's going to be more PR speak from, you know, my already prepared statement about my retirement. Rest assured, this is not it. No, no, no. Yeah, he goes in. It's great. All right. So if you would like to read this interview, whether online or in our print magazine, you can do so by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right. Jose, we are so eager for your thoughts. But before we get into them... I want to do a gut check, which is when Caleb and I kind of tell our listeners how they really feel. So when you're reading about church planting stories and specifically church plants um, that are opening in changing neighborhoods, do you have an immediate visceral reaction? Yeah, I do, actually. So a friend of mine here in Chicago um, was involved or still is involved with a church plant in a neighborhood in kind of the north side of the city um, in Uptown, if folks are familiar with the Chicago area. And um, it's a historic neighborhood. It's got a lot of history to it. Um, and it's also a fairly diverse neighborhood in a lot of different ways. But it's also uh, slowly changing. When they started planting their church, a lot of the church planters, the folks that were coming in, were not people from the uptown neighborhood. And so they had to do a lot of research to start out with to find out, like, where are we going to? And like, are we going to be helpful or harmful? Um, and even finding the answers to those questions, even when they were asking fairly directly, wasn't always obvious. And so, you know, three, four years in, um, they're still finding out some of their sort of wake, as it were, um, what sort of impact they're having, what sort of waves they're making for good and for bad, that causes them to continually adjust. And so my reaction is like, it's hard, it's complicated. And like, there are a lot of blind spots that you don't know. And there's a lot of blind corners, as it were. And so um, I'm really curious to hear from Jose about um, his sort of perspective, um, having grown up in the city, and then also ministering in the city, um, what sort of things he's noticed. Yeah, my gut check is kind of just that, I don't know exactly what I feel. I would just say I feel some type of way about it. I go to, as many longtime listeners know on the show, I go to a church that meets in a house. It's probably always going to meet in a house because that's the model, but it does meet in one of these neighborhoods that may be changing. It's unclear, but it is, I would I would say, disinvested in right now, and I live in that neighborhood as well. And so these types of issues always hit home for me, and I'm always they're always kind of like top of mind when I'm thinking about like what good urban ministry looks like. But I always have like lots of questions and it's always kind of uncomfortable at the same time. So, all right, Jose, we, we're, we're going to get into it now. Now that you kind of know about our like our own backgrounds with this issue. So you write about this current phenomena of church planters starting congregations in under-resourced neighborhoods. Do you know how long this has been happening? It's been happening at least uh, a good 20 years. You know, if you go back to institutions like uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church and um, some of the, the institutes that have come from their ministry and their large investment into uh, church plants. And there are, of course, other uh, church planting institutions as well, like Orchard and, and a few others. We saw this massive influx uh, through these, uh, these plans to uh, evangelize the city that, that was uh, bring Jesus to the city. And 
what we get right now are the results, basically, uh, that you've read of uh, an influx of, of churches moving into different parts of the city, whether it be Center City, Manhattan, or some of the more distressed neighborhoods. We, we have a, a plethora of, of evangelical churches. I, I would say uh, no shortage. What do you think was the catalyst for this movement? You, you mentioned some of these like larger church planting things, but I mean, if it ha- started happening 20 years ago, that means for a while it was never happening or before that it was never happening. It's a, a specific theology that I, I think is connected with uh, urban ministry. There, there are quite a few seminaries out there that have created whole uh, urban ministry departments. And I think that was actually a good thing as aspiring theologians and, and ministers to think about um, God's role in the cities uh, using uh, the scripture text like stories like about Jonah going into Nineveh and not wanting to evangelize that city or speak uh, life into that city or, or Paul, how Paul would go into major cities because he would recognize that cities can catalyze information and, and the word can spread very easily into the surrounding provinces if you do good ministry in cities. So there was this, this insurgence of, of looking at the scriptures through uh, an urban lens, uh, through the means of, of people like um, Ray Baki and others, even uh, Christian Community Development Association, which I, also, which I love. And it gave many church planners, many ministers, just this um, impetus for wanting to see God work in, in neighborhoods. Yet at the same time, there were so many of these like unspoken, uh, unintended consequences that can arise from things like relocation and, and moving in um, with certain sensibilities and not, not realizing how you might be contributing to some of the challenges of a neighborhood when you're moving in. So it sounds like there was uh, like a theology of church planting that was developing and a theology of urban ministry that was sort of developing at the time. Was there another like side of theology that you think maybe needed to be worked out more, maybe a theology of urban communities or um, of neighborhoods that might have helped to sort of prepare folks for that? This is where it gets a little complex, to your point earlier. I, I think when people were developing this theology, uh, they were doing it from the lens of seeing the city represented in Scripture and the importance of it. And you, you'll hear, uh, like, say, Tim Keller say things like how, you know, creation began in the garden, but uh, the world ends and heaven begins in a city. And it was getting people more urban-minded to think about getting greater impact through um, more density, geographic density, that is, and catalyzing the gospel, in a sense, through urban centers where uh, art, uh, intelligentsia, uh, culture was all at this intersection. And, and if all of those things continue consistently spread right through the city, then how much, how much more would the good news of the gospel as, as modeled by Paul in the New Testament, um, how much more would that also spread um, quickly as well? But I, I think to your point or to your question, where are you getting at? When you're flying kind of at that 36,000, 20,000 feet over the urban landscape, you're missing a lot of the nuances and the intersections that can often overlook the complexity of neighborhoods as having particular ecologies. Every every neighborhood is its own ecosystem of, of class, of culture, of race, of economics, as you mentioned earlier. And it really does require a very tailored, uh, incarnational, if you will, approach rather than any just uh, broad-brushed approach to, uh, or five principles to uh, doing ministry in the urban context. So it's almost like city was too flat of a word that didn't necessarily give people a sense of just how in-depth and nuanced the ministry they wanted to bring was going to have to be. Absolutely. Uh, City is a caricature in many ways. Even when I host, let's say, ministry groups from outside of the city, one of the things that I begin with was, hey, you know, I just want to let you know that, you know, folks need Jesus back in your own backyard, you know, for some of y'all who are coming from, you know, either the Midwest or Appalachia, you know, you may want to check out some of the, the poverty statistics there as well uh-huh. and, and, and see how, you know, Jesus may want to, you know, address the, you know, the trailer and the cinder block and not just the, the tenement or the housing project. It's really about grounding people's views to honor place and to honor context in such a way that you don't necessarily just have to go into the city to really find poverty. It's, it's everywhere. But I think going back to what you were saying about city and how it was uh, presented and constructed, city for some for some reason equals need to be saved, evil, 
pagan and country and suburbs are somehow more of a reflection of the image of God in heaven. And I don't know where that came from. It also sounds like there's an, an adjustment of the understanding of mission, where mm-hmm. typically people are thinking of, you know, something exotic and going overseas to a, a culture and a place that isn't familiar, doesn't look like what they're used to. And maybe because there's been quite a bit of movement out of cities among whites and there's been an adjustment in the demographic shift. So based on like who's in cities and what they're doing, that, that it's the city kind of still had some of that exoticness to it that sort of like drove a sort of missionary focus sort of back to the city. I've heard language of like reclaiming the city for Jesus and things like that. That's right. And and it's uh, under sort of this colonial guise, if you will, when people talk about taking or reclaiming. And uh, I'm just very careful with language like that, because what, what it often means is gentrification or as I heard one local senator say that whenever we talk about urban renewal, it usually means, and just to be somewhat crass, uh, Negro removal. In other words, when this uh, this gospel that's often presented, this story that's often presented, can often take on many vestiges or uh, elements of whiteness that end up taking on a different type of posture, not one that might perhaps honor the history, the, the suffering and the struggle of the neighborhood, but more superimpose an imagination that, that comes from a particular source without any input or feedback from the neighborhood residents themselves. So when we talk about church planters, I think that there is some sort of image that goes through people's head that is often distinct from folks who are starting storefront churches, which you can find in many inner city neighborhoods, and often those will pop up in different places. When we use words like church planters, why, do, why don't we necessarily see those church leaders behind storefront churches in the same category? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And by the way, you know, I'm, I'm indicted in this conversation as well, if you want to use that <laughs> word. I'm, I am part of the church plant industrial complex. I, I come out of a denomination. I, I was resourced in the beginning and had all the accoutrements that come with uh, entering into neighborhoods and uh, looking at things from a different perspective. So I, I want to just make it, make it a point that I am also self-critical and also a part of the machine at times. When we first started here in East Harlem, we, we did like this massive mailing. And uh, one of those massive mailings, apparently the mailings cannot dif- differentiate between like storefront churches and brownstones and, and neighborhood residences. So a, a storefront pastor church happened to receive one of our flyers inviting him to our church. And Oh, man, talk about him kind of giving me the business. Like, oh, oh by the way, uh, did you know that this was not a residence, but this was a church? And <laughs> who are you? And, you know, what's up with your glossy flyers? And, you know, and, and it was a, a stark reminder to me. And I had been living in the neighborhood, by the way, by about nine to ten years at that point, And I'm, you know, native New Yorker. But it was that I, there was a context and there was a history to honor. And for some reason... When people think storefront church, they think of something that is either uh, just limited and and somehow has not been able to break through into some sort of effective uh, ministry expression. And that's how I was looking at it at the time. And when I look at this now, I realize that, wow, though, you know, those storefronts in many ways are the faithful ministry of many churches over time, African-American churches in particular, who either bought property, had the vision to, to stay in Harlem when Harlem uh, was was uh, suffering with with more crime and and urban blight and and no one could even sell a brownstone for ten dollars in in some of these neighborhoods and this uh, person's property is really just a testament to someone who has stayed put through all the ups and downs from uh, from gentrification to um, crime and poverty it, it's just really awesome to see that kind of faithfulness. I didn't see it at the time. What I saw it was as, uh, well, you know, I guess you got to deal with the uh, the gatekeepers. But I, I realized that that, that that was an almost an arrogant lens at the time. Yeah, it's also interesting because from what I understand, many storefront churches aren't attached to denominations, which means they're not necessarily giving denominational money to fund these programs. And so there is a level of informality and hustle that you need to keep a storefront congregation alive and thriving that is not necessarily true for one for churches that are coming from a larger establishment. 
That's right. That's right. And, you know, you don't really hear any of these uh, denominations striving to plant storefront churches, right? You know, we're <laughs> here to, you know, we want to, um, the, I guess the, the new lingo is, you know, churches that mu- uh, multiply or churches that plant other churches, right? It's, uh, and movement is no longer about just planting churches, but the plant, uh, church plant movements. And hey, it's funny to me how, you know, we have these like one word verbs that has become part of like, you know, Christian culture, right? To, that, that signifies anything great or, or good, like catalyze or infuse or <laughs> fire or, you know, and, because, and you know, you're just, you just realize, well, you know, we are part of like this church industrial complex and, and there's, there's a little bit of a pop culture element to it that's, uh, you know, infused with just, you know, uh, savvy marketing schemes. And uh, I realize the need for, for getting the word out about these things, but it does in many ways come across as something very couched and packaged. I want to put a plug in for the Startup Podcast right now, which is a podcast that looks at entrepreneurs, and it's been going about five or six seasons, but this season is about church planting. And I think because this is a podcast that focuses on so many Silicon Valley-esque entrepreneurs, they do an especially interesting job juxtaposing the lingo of Silicon Valley with the lingo of church planting. Just want to say that. It just started, so I think people... Yeah, might be interested in listening to that if they're interested in listening to this podcast. So I, I want to kind of move Jose into some of the stuff that happens when churches that are part of this church planting industrial complex that we're talking about um, do move into neighborhoods. What effect have you seen that these new congregations have had on the neighborhood that you live in? Well, you know, it's one of those things where you think about like causation, right? Does do uh, these, you know, in some cases wealthy or, uh, you know, more middle class, upper middle class uh, churches uh, cause gentrification? I, I don't think I'd go as far as saying that, but I would say that there is a sensibility that they contribute to these neighborhoods where uh, gentrification has already taken root. And it's basically supporting the, the sensibilities of, the, of this new uh, group of people, this gentry that has moved in. Yeah. So there's the question of what are our churches doing to be that um, alternative reality in our neighborhood that might speak a different economic story because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And if we're merely just uh, there to, you know, honor the, uh, the cupcake uh, shops, right? You know, there was actually an article that uh, talked about the indicators of gentrification. And it's usually when you get these like specialty novelties, novelty stores or, uh, you know, either the cupcake store or the by the way, my wife and I love the cupcake shop. <laughs> and, and we, so once again, you know, self-critical. And, or, or the Sugar Hill Creamery where, you know, they're, they're making homemade ice cream. Right. But they're, artisanal they're, something. Yeah, artisanal something. Exactly. Uh, you know, something in a, in a jar. Or, and uh, I, think, I think what uh, church plants need to be is just a, a little bit more mindful and, and more discerning and self-critical. And, and look at the different ways that they show up which is a, a, a piece of a big theme in my book. You know, what, what does your, your incarnational presence communicate to the community around you? What, what do you bring in your embodied presence, whether it's through your, your, uh, your body, your skin, your, your class, your education? I mean, that, that's just something that, that my wife and I are very uh, aware of. You know, we realize just, just, just because her last name is Lopez and my first name is Jose, doesn't necessarily mean that we automatically identified with uh, people in East Harlem. For example, we make three times the median income of East Harlem, the barrio. So we recognize that there was a a class distinction, an educational distinction, because we've had the privilege of adding a few uh, letters behind our name or before our name. Uh, So uh, we were mindful of that going in and did not assume a solidarity or uh, some sort of like, um, yeah, sisterhood, brotherhood. We we took our time to just really examine the narrative of our community, and and I think that that's often an, off, uh, an overlooked step when many of these church plants are coming in. Not all. There are many that are doing you know, great jobs, and we could talk about that later on. But there, there is, in many ways, this uh, idea of just uh, con- simply contributing to what's up and coming. And, and that is, to me, a, a very detrimental way. I'll use the word detrimental, detrimental way of approaching neighborhoods and, and neighborhood pain and uh, looking to do something redemptive. That uh, word incarnational you were using, I think, is is a really useful word and valuable word because of um, our commitment to Jesus and the way that he was incarnated and how much, you know, 
work, quote unquote, that word can do um, as a metaphor. But also I was curious just to put a little more flesh, as it were, on what you're talking <laughs> about. Can you give um, maybe a couple of examples, maybe a positive one and a negative one of the ways that you've seen that done well and maybe not done so well? Sure, sure. I mentioned in, in the article in uh, Christianity Today about how our, our church uh, supports local businesses. And one of the things that we do is we, we support folks who are who, who live in the neighborhood, who are uh, indigenous to the neighborhood, meaning most likely a, a person of color, and uh, are, are looking to get their enterprise off the ground. And, and so whether it's the, the Spanish restaurant, the Café con Leche uh, Café, places that have been hallmarks in our community, the bodegas, hallmarks in, in the barrio, but are now being driven out by um, larger businesses or sometimes, you know, more fancy, well-resourced businesses. So one of, we, we believe in that kind of solidarity uh, coming alongside, um, having people spend dollars there. And, and, and it's a mindful approach. It's amazing to, to see a business owner light up and ask the question, like, why would this church do this? Why even bother? And, you know, many folks don't make that connection between um, their dollars and um, community stewardship. So that's one way of being incarnational. Being incarnational is, is, is this notion of not only uh, presence, but how does that presence connote a particular kind of staying in our neighborhood, a mindful kind of staying, uh, a staying that uh, sees the least among us, a, a kind of staying that sees those who are overlooked, the invisible, a kind of st- the kind of staying that would have us rethink where we spend our dollars. So that's the incarnation. And that, that's maybe more of a positive way. It's a negative approach in doing it, and I, I think is uh, coming into a neighborhood and having no conversations with people who have been living in that neighborhood for at least 15 to 20 years. You know, I've, I've been living in, in, in Harlem for 18 years, and it's, it's funny, I'm not considered an OG here. You know, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll speak to the person who has been here several generations and, and you know, not that you have to kiss the, the, the signet ring, so to speak, but there is this sense of wanting to get the blessing once they hear what it is that your church is about and wanting to bring love and light and also honor, um, you know, history of, of renaissance, creativity, resilience. And, and when people hear that story, then you'll find that there are more opportunities for collaboration and you can actually become a part of the root system, right? Look, get, you know, sometimes dig, dig down before you you spread out and, and, and find out what's happening below the surface and, and what has happened over the years. And when we take on that posture, you'll, you'll find that there, there'll be a lot more um, affinity and, and solidarity from those around you. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. Today, we are talking with Rachel Myers, who is the founder and CEO of She Reads Truth. Rachel, it is great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Rachel, what makes the Christian Standard Bible a good translation for the work that you guys do at She Reads Truth? You know, it claims to be this, you know, dynamic equivalence between, you know, that word for word process and that thought for thought. And the truth is, it really is that. It's very readable and also really reliable. It's very trustworthy. We were reading in staff devotions today from Revelation chapter 5. One of the staff members at the table just remarked, wow, the CSB of chapter 5 verse 12, you know, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Those words are so different and clear in the CSB. And so it's also really nice for, you know, anyone who's grown up reading a certain translation. I grew up you know, memorizing the NIV and the KJV. And so when you can step out of the familiar into the unfamiliar, but still really um, trustworthy, I think it's just a nice way to kind of get a fresh ear to God's Word. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com slash ct. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. 
Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. In my experience, there's many church plans that when they do move into neighborhoods that may be um, lower on the socioeconomic end, many of them have a heart to be churches where there's a variety of socioeconomic statuses and incomes represented, but that that's also a really tough challenge. And I think part of that does go back to what you were talking about earlier, Jose, when it comes to taste and sensibility, where the type of theology that the people that they see as their target audience might be interested in, or the type of music that they listen to, or even things like graphic design, you know, or the type of clothes that people wear, the insider language that's assumed, all those things that sometimes we just think about as church, um, but are actually, you know, reflections of our own culture can make people either feel welcomed or unwelcomed in a particular place. Even if you're, you know, literally saying like, we want to have a church that is mixed across income level and um, try not to be inhospitable and aggressive, you know, obvious ways. What are some ways that you think that churches can actually reach across income level? That's a great question. And when I respond, I respond as someone who has seen signs and and flashes of it, uh, but it's also very difficult to sustain. In other words, I've seen I've seen it more as a kind of a fleeting uh, notion at times. And and I say this more about the class piece because we often focus on race, but we don't often focus on the intersection of, of both race and class, especially in the church milieu, the church context. You know, even among African-Americans, you have, you know, African-Americans with maybe like more, you know, middle class, upper class sensibilities who might be finding churches uh, not in Harlem on the Upper East Side. And, and then you find that, wow, this is a lot more complex than I thought it was, you know. And, you know, just because someone's black doesn't mean that they always want to worship around someone who is African-American or they might be looking for someone who has similar sensibilities, children in the same kinds of schools, the same kinds of networks. So, you know, we really find that. You know, you find this among, you know, Asian culture, Latinx culture, and, and you find that there are many dividing walls of hostility that really do keep us apart and make this, these church plant endeavors uh, a real challenge. It's something that we don't talk about enough. When, I, I've, when I've seen it at its best is when you shape a culture as opposed to trying to create a program in the church. And, and that's a deeper, deeper question, right? Because when you, when you look at culture, uh, the culture of organizational culture, institutional culture. You know, you're looking at the both the values, the language, the practices, the beliefs, the affirmations, all, all of the things that that are both spoken and unspoken and make us us. So you take that that, that um, African American person who's living in East Harlem. You know, she might be a, a, a mom who's really struggling, um, working three jobs. When she goes into maybe one of these more middle class churches that serve fair trade coffee and you know, have all of the accoutrements and the signage and everything. She might actually say like, wow, they were really friendly. But there's a part of her that also might feel like she she's holding back because she doesn't feel like she fits in into that context, right? That would be a pretty normal thing, even if the church was, was really good. And you find that it, it's just really difficult. That's why focusing more on the types of cultures we create as a church within larger neighborhood ecologies is more of an important approach than just, say, a strategy that to win more people for Christ and be more inclusive. Because you realize that, man, you know, if we're not looking at how we do things, how we language things, so to speak, to get even more granular, who's in our leadership, who gets to inform this. As a matter of fact, who, if you're talk, we're still talking about church plants, who's in this group since inception? Because and and if this person, this working class person is part of our core group uh, going in, then and we're really interested in his or her sensibilities, then that's going to affect everything. Right. The the types of retreats we do, <laughs> maybe we won't be doing it in, you know, X Lodge, you know, somewhere in suburbia. But maybe we're thinking about affordability here where many churches don't even think about that stuff because, you know, we're a bunch of middle class folks that where where affordability is often assumed. And then our relationships with the poor are more transactional in terms of if this is something that we give to the outside, but they're not really a part of our community. And when I think about like Dr. King, when he talked about this 
beloved community, right? Which, of course, was a vision that transcended church. It was for, for the world, for America. When I think about that beloved community, what if more of God's children were represented in the local church, representing the, 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 the local demographic? Not perfectly, not perfectly, but even if you had those three or four folks, right, that, that people would look at, and then they would look at your church and say, man, they don't belong there. Why would they even go to that church? But then maybe there's just, there's just something so compelling happening in that church, right, in terms of radical hospitality, welcome, and empowerment that is defying the, the norms. You're right. We do talk about race a lot. There's a lot of interest in multiracial, multiethnic churches and like trying to bring a vision of the kingdom through that. But I think the class side of it does kind of get lost. I was just doing a little bit of soul searching and thinking about my own church, uh, which is a suburban, primarily white church. Um, but it's also fairly stratified class-wise. It's it's a pretty upper-middle-class vibe. And I think part of that even goes to dress. Like, how do people dress when they get there? And so, like, I was thinking about somebody who, you know, has to come in off the job or is um, going to be more considered blue-collar, probably wouldn't feel comfortable in our church because everybody's dressing pretty snappy on a Sunday morning. And that, like, and I sometimes lead worship at the church, and like, I don't know if it would be acceptable for me to come in more casual clothing that might be more comfortable for somebody who maybe can't afford for the snappier stuff that everybody else is wearing. Or like you were talking about with the uh, retreat, we offer to help people pay for church functions like retreats if they can't afford it. But even the fact that they have to ask for it creates that sort of stratification in an interesting way that most folks would probably think that it's pretty, we're pretty welcoming, but they might not stay because they don't feel like they belong, even if they do feel welcomed. Yeah. I was also thinking of my church experience too, especially with regards to type of like training and expertise that church leaders are needed to have. So I mentioned at the top of the show that I attend a house church and it's part of a network of house churches. And one of my favorite things about this is that you don't have to have a seminary degree to teach. And they actually have a teaching class that anyone who attends the church can go to. And the church is complementary in its beliefs. So men are the only ones that can teach on Sunday mornings, though women have time to teach at other events. But I guess what I find remarkable about that is that the we get such a wide breadth of people who end up teaching on Sunday mornings because seminary is not a prerequisite for that, which would be a huge income barrier for a number of people at the church. But I would I, I honestly feel like the teaching we get is so rich because they found a way to quote unquote accredit people without doing that otherwise. Right? You know, you just you hear from so many different life experiences than saying, oh, everyone needs to go to this seminary or to go to seminary period. That's not going to be an opportunity that most people have. That's beautiful. And, and it's really the empowerment of the laity where seminaries have in many ways influenced us in such a way to professionalize the church, right? And that's exactly to what you're saying. But how do we get back to empowering the laity and, and realizing that we are the, the royal priesthood of believers and, and everyone has something to contribute. And, you know, every, every member should be a minister of some sort. And that in many ways takes us back to the true nature of liturgy, right? Where liturgy is literally like the work of the people. So how how are the people informing, you know, what happens in our in our church and and how we go about reaching our neighborhood, how we go about our church polity and who's in, who's included and who's not, who has authority and who's not. And you know, all of those all of those things really speak to uh, culture. What you spoke to really speaks to the to the culture of the church. Where the typical, I would say, culture of our church tends to be a, a lot more hierarchical and uh, framed on these these kinds of like performative values. You know, who's ministering when, who's singing when, uh, who gets to do what. Right. That's that's kind of the mark of the megachurch in many ways. You know, I'd like to see churches experiment with um, you know getting people's voices back in there and. Uh, People who, who typically don't necessarily have the authority that comes with a, a master of divinity or, you know, some sort of credentialing. And I think in many ways it might downsize the church somewhat. <laughs> That's what people fear, right? You know, we want to put out, we want to put out a good product, right? Let's let's put that out there, right? You know, and that's 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 part of the language, right? With with the with these new church plants too. It's you know, they especially in New York City, one of the things that they tell you is you have to be sophisticated. 
your your musical uh, worship has to be excellent. It has to uh, kind of titillate the New York sensibility. And I mean, there's a whole litany of things that are in many ways so value laden in, to a sense, elitism. And, and you're also demarcating a specific demographic when you talk like that. And I got caught up in that, I, you know, in the very beginning. I, you know, our church has gone through so many ebbs and flows. And, and right now we're, we're probably, you know, just recovering right now from some of those, one of those ebbs. Uh, where we realized with, with a church planter, me, who's more of a pastor now, so we're, we're beyond the church plant stage had to realize that, oh, you know, Jose, whose uh, sensibilities are you pandering here to? Sometimes that gaze, the gaze of, uh, you know, as a man of color, you know, whether it's the gaze of whiteness, the gaze of sophistication, the gaze of, uh, wow, look at, look at who I'm drawing, can really, can really impact uh, a church plant that are un, unbeknownst to them. And it, it's really uh, important for us to, to ask the questions and discern the, the posture of the heart and what types of information are the most influential in you shaping ministry? Yeah, I think that that humility and the, and the willingness to be self-critical is very important and valuable. And I think just being willing to ask those questions and seriously consider the answers uh, adjusts the framework quite a bit on its own, simply because you're no longer thinking in terms of the standard sort of scripts for how we do church planting how we bring in a certain amount of people, how do we establish this church in this community over the course of X number of years, what's our target audience, what's our target like size, That's right. those sorts That's of right. questions. I do want to complicate the discussion just a bit as the theology... It isn't theology... complicated enough <laughs> <laughs> No, man, never, never. Um, as the theology editor, uh, a lot of what I am doing is working with academics and people in the in the machine, as it were, um, in the system that is sort of dedicated to seminary and to formalized education. And a lot of those folks are very keen on, and as as they would be, um, keen on the importance of that sort of dedicated time and effort, recognizing that's a privileged position. And I wonder, here's the complicating factor. I wonder how we can retrieve the valuable aspects of what that sort of formalized authority structures were trying to do, like the good things they were trying to do, without having to funnel everything down that privileged road. My immediate thought listening to some of this is like, well, I can imagine somebody listening and being like, yeah, but they like you send a pastor to seminary so that they don't like bull in a china shop in a church and just sort of like you know, send scripture bits every which way. And, you know, who knows what kind of like, is that even truth that he's speaking? You know, and there's concerns about like the quality. Um, and maybe we're too concerned about quality. But I think there's a there's a valuable impulse to like seek after um, good preparation. So how do we how do we take those things and resource them in a church where the resources to go to seminary are not possible for folks that probably have an honest and really powerful call to ministry. Yeah, and I wouldn't want people to mis- misconstrue um, our discussion about seminary. I mean, I'm, I'm a seminary graduate, and I believe in um, just the, not only the power of the, the friendships you develop there, but also um, being able to see the scripture in uh, a more broad, broader light, uh, a different canvas, and it's been of great help to me. Two things. I think there's seminaries that are really trying to bridge the gap between theology and praxis. You know, you, you take your Fullers, you take your, you know, your Gordon Conwells, you know, there's some, some good folks out there that I know, even Union Theological Seminary, when you look at uh, the, the religion and society track and upgrade emphasis on the church. So I think that seminaries are really trying to bridge the gap so that uh, graduates don't feel that they're leaving behind like 90% of what they learned, <laughs> you know, and they can actually you know, apply some of this. So, you know, I, I think if anything, it, it does well with, uh, you know, both deconstructing and, and hopefully, hopefully reconstructing a, a gospel theology that is incarnational, embodied, that uh, brings love into the world in more directed ways. So looking at the seminary, I think those are the things that I'd like to actually see more of, like how, how do seminaries train pastors to empower the laity? Which, which I think sometimes there's a gap there. You know, aside from some of the other gaps that I've heard churches speak about with regards to the seminary, like, you know, not knowing 
management, budgeting, right? Some of the, the some of the operational, organizational development uh, things that you need in order for the church to to run viably. Uh, I think that that we don't put enough of an emphasis on on discipleship. And when I talk about discipleship, I'm talking about a particular type of discipleship because that's such a loaded word, and it's a powerful word, but it's also loaded. You know, for some. Some might believe discipleship as being the deposit of more information, you know, more scripture reading, more Bible study. But I'm thinking about more embodied experiences where people in our church are going on pilgrimages in their own neighborhoods. And we're, we're not only exegeting, right, interpreting the text, but we're also ex- exegeting our neighborhoods, you know, in, in light of that. So an example of that. I took a group of uh, folks from an Upper West Side church on the the Exodus experience. And by the way, for people who don't know what the Upper West Side is, just oh yeah, yeah, the Upper West Side is a neighborhood in Manhattan. Yeah, so and uh, that would be um, yeah, southwest of of East Harlem, if you wanted to along Central Park and probably it's relatively affluent. That's right, and so it's uh, relatively affluent. Uh, You know, folks have some privilege out there, so. Do an organization called uh, Hope for New York. I was slated to uh, do a neighborhood pilgrimage with folks here in East Harlem. And we took Jeremiah 29, seeking the shalom of the city, right? Uh, where Jeremiah speaks to the exiles. The exiles were, as we say in the old church, they, they were prophesied upon <laughs> by, by many of the prophets saying that they would have to, uh, that they should go back to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah comes back as the unpopular prophet and says, no, you'll be staying here and you'll be, uh, marrying folks and planting gardens. And guess what? Your particular thing is going to be really about seeking the shalom, the flourishing, and the well-being of, of Babylon. Yeah, I know you don't like that, but that's going to happen for 70 years. So so when folks are coming in, you know, I, I'm really kind of opening their eyes to this particular kind of staying um, as it pertains, for example, to East Harlem. So I'll, I'll present them, you know, to uh, I'll show the murals, which, you know, murals in communities speak about neighborhood history and pain, and they're, they're kind of like the community hieroglyphics, so to speak. And, and uh, you know, how are you exegeting the community? What happened here? Who died? Why are there candles on the, on the floor? How do, you know, uh, what's happening here? Does this, might this uh, be about police brutality? And, and then, you know, we, we transition further east right across the, the tracks, you know, to uh, where the Metro North train runs in. And literally, there's a shift in, in the socioeconomics of the neighborhood when you go further into East Harlem and uh, into an organization called Exodus Transitional Community, where they work with uh, returning citizens who are, you know, folks who are formerly incarcerated. The, the idea to, of bringing them there is to bring them into close proximity to folks who are just getting out, fresh out. I'm talking about like, you know, long-term sentences, people who have done 27, 30 years, and so that they could get into conversation with them. And part of that immersion is for them to develop a particular staying while they're there and also a particular listening. I, I prep them, in other words. When you listen to these stories, I don't want you to hear them as sob stories, but I want you to hear them as, as stories of, of resilience. The fact that somebody could come out of prison, this, in our prison industrial complex, which focuses on punishment, and, and still come out with hope, still uh, get a job, still come out here and, and make something of themselves and, and hold on to their faith is nothing short of a miracle. And you'll find that people's lenses uh, the narrative gaps that existed between, you know, let's say, you know, some of the affluent folks and uh, some of the folks who are just getting out begins to decrease all the more because of that, because of that incarnation, because of that proximity, because of that experience and pilgrimage, which goes back to your original question about seminary. And I think we need more uh, experiential, incarnational discipleship that's going to allow us to walk in our bodies into uh, places and spaces and have conversations with people, because that's what Jesus did. When when you're talking about incarnation, Jose, one thing that I think about a lot is about people relocating to move to the neighborhood where their church is. And so going back to this house church that I've been a part of, there's been a number of people who have started attending the church and have decided that they are going to move to this neighborhood. Um, but given some of the larger concerns that we've talked about, about drivers of neighborhood change and gentrification, do you advise that church leaders and attendees move into the neighborhoods that they have their congregations in? That is such a complicated question. And I think it's one that we're <laughs> going to be we're going to be talking about for 
for years on end. You know, I don't know if you remember a Christian Community Development Association before they changed some of their approach, but you know, they had like four different R's, like reconciliation, and one of them was also relocation. And I forget what the other R's were at this point. This was a long time ago. Uh, but what they found was that you know, relocation was causing some tensions for the very uh, reasons that you're describing. There's the fear that uh, when folks are relocating, once again, they're bringing in certain sensibilities and those sensibilities are merely just adding to this larger uh, narrative of gentrification. I don't have a hard and fast answer to that. Because, uh, you know, take my example uh, in, in, in our church. Uh, we we uh, live in a just a transient city. And in my church, you know, we've fallen victim to that, that transience of people coming and going, you know, staying in the city for two to three years. And then next thing you know, it, it feels like you're kind of hitting the reset button again. And that's, that's the vulnerability of a small church. Uh, so even when I encouraged people to move in and who, who did honor uh, the, the community and took time to befriend neighbors and, and have a really just well-defined uh, theology of, of justice and um, looking out for the least of these, what I found is that, you know, those folks didn't, didn't even last long in the neighborhood. <laughs> you, know, you know, there was either they either got priced out or, or stages of life, stages of life happened. But that's that's New York City. Manhattan has a, a, a rhythm like no other, as you know. And, and we're still trying to figure that out. So I do still encourage people to move into the neighborhood. But when they find out a two bedroom apartment is listed at twenty eight hundred dollars, they might end up uh, moving you know, a, a couple of miles, a couple of miles east, southeast to the South Bronx, you know, which is also a community that is gentrifying. So I don't sit here as one who has somehow cracked the code of like, what, what does it look like to have this like heavenly, locally based neighborhood church? You know, in truth, I have, uh, like I think most churches do, uh, a combination of both commuters and, and also residents of, of greater Harlem. Uh, I, I think, I think the forces are such that to go against them would require a staff base and a financial base that our, our small church uh, lamentably does not have. You know, you're, you're talking about larger cultural forces, forces that are just part of what New York City is. So I think people just need to be discerning uh, as to whether, you know, yeah, this is, this is God calling them. How much time are they going to spend in that neighborhood? I used to be a purist about that stuff, just as one of my mentors was as well. Uh, meaning you have to live in the neighborhood that you serve. And and now what you're seeing is, you know, some folks might commute somewhere and their apartment is basically their pillow, but they spend no time in that local neighborhood, but they might spend 40 to 50 hours serving a specific neighborhood, serving the poor, working with victims of drug violence or domestic violence. And so what do you say about, about to that person, right, who might need a respite, <laughs> you know, and kind of get out of the hood and, and maybe go back to someplace else where they just find they need to be disconnected from the neighborhood? So to add to the complexity, there's, there is some of that. Uh, I, I don't think the community, commuter reality, at least in New York City, is the worst thing in the world because people's rhythms are, are based that way as well. Before I pastored, I, I attended a church uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. There was a church right across the street from me here in Harlem, but I felt for some reason, compelled and drawn to the mission of that other church. So I think it, it's, it's less about, you know, what's right or wrong or principled. It's, it's more of, I think, I, I think the question is, what are you discerning? And, and are you aware of what you're bringing when you're showing up? That's the, those are the questions I want folks to ask. Where do you see God working right now in East Harlem? Wow. You know, I'll, I'll give you something that happened yesterday and it's something that uh, was in the uh, Christian, Christianity Today article as well on um, our cash mobs. We decided, rather than um, spread our efforts and support a bunch of local businesses, we decided to just hone in on maybe one or two businesses to go from collaboration to maybe adoption. And we're really excited about that because we have a great relationship with the restaurant owners. We just mobbed their place yesterday. And to see the place just light up, uh, to see our church gathering, um, you know, fellowship together uh, use cash uh, for a local establishment to make sure that they remain uh, become a mainstay in this community. Uh, just powerful things. So when I when I see the possibility of a partnership that way, I really see God at work. I see this beautiful tethering, this uh, network and ecology of grace at work. So and I'm really grateful for it. Awesome. All right. Well, Jose, again, that was just an awesome conversation. If anyone has any follow up to this conversation that we had, 
just now, they can go on Twitter. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts, or they can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone here to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. You ready to go, Caleb? The church that I attend uh, is a liturgical church and um, really pays a lot of attention to the church calendar. And anyone who attends a church like that knows that in the summer, we're in what's called ordinary time, and there's not a lot going on. Uh, And so we invented something just to kind of tide (laughs) us over in between now and Advent, and it's called Bowtie Sunday. Um, And it comes up at the end of the month, but uh, it's a sort of just a kind of celebratory Sunday where we have a good time. We put on bows and bow ties just to have something to sort of celebrate. And we also do um, sort of more folky, old-timey music as the sort of musical theme. And so I got together some guys from my church, and we're doing a barbershop quartet, and it's great. (laughs) Like, I love to sing. I love to... Um, and singing with those guys is a lot of fun because we sound really great. And when you sing with uh, folks that are real good, it sounds awesome and it feels awesome. And so it's it was a I was just practicing with them on Sunday, and it was a ton of fun. Those guys are a blast. Will you have a name for your group? Uh, we should come up with a name. We were talking about that the other day, and somebody had a really good idea, and I cannot remember it right now. But uh, okay, we should definitely come up with a name for the group. Yeah, awesome. If people want to follow you outside of this show. I am the theology editor here at Christianity Today, so um, theological topics are my jam. So uh, if you see an article with a theology kicker, that's my stuff, so read it. Those authors are great. Um, Also, I manage the Christian history side of the website and the Christian history uh, Twitter account, which gives a little This Day in Christian History updates. Um, So you can follow at C-H-R-S-T-I-A-N history uh, on Twitter. And then I, my Twitter account is at C. Adams Lindgren. But I don't post often, so don't get too excited. All right. Jose, you ready to go? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Two quick things. Uh, We have uh, four people getting baptized this Sunday, so we're really excited about that. And yeah, just to see that uh, three of them are young people between the ages of like 12 and 14. So that's awesome. uh, just to see that kind of commitment at that age is is a beautiful thing. And the other other quick thing, I know you, this is a bonus. You know, my son's 11 years old and uh, we were getting on him about like, you know, responsibilities in the house. And he's actually exploring both cooking and baking. And that's, hey. you know, like, that's, that's like a new energy, man, you know, <laughs> outside of like, like Fortnite and, you know, YouTube and right. the most popular and, you know, all that stuff. So we're, we're, we're really excited at home. We hope that this could become something. Did so. he do dinner recently or what has he made so far? You know, he, he, he was, he helped out with the, with the burritos. So I was, I was really impressed. He was chop, chopping ingredients, all right. what kind of cheese and. It's like, oh, wow. And he remembered, like, what ingredient goes in, and I I was really impressed. So, you know. (laughs) And then when you make it really good good and it tastes awesome, you can do the floss. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, when you talk about the floss, it's so funny. He he actually uh, the dance. You know, he, yeah. He, he was sitting in the front with me yesterday, and he just had a. I don't know if it was a momentary lapse. He just started flossing <laughs> randomly, and you know, mind you, he's in the front of the church. Yep, you know, he's yeah. sitting next to me, and I just gave him the look, like, really, dude? Like, <laughs> you know. The church hasn't quite caught up yet. Maybe somewhere down the line that could be a praise dance, but not quite there. Well, yeah. quite yet, right? It is the praise dance of middle school boys. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. sure. <laughs> All right. Are you on social media? Yes, I am. So at Twitter at Jose Humphreys, uh, on Facebook at Jose Humphreys as well, and, and Instagram at, at, at the same thing, Jose Humphreys. So uh, follow me there. The book, what's it called? There's that. There's that. Yeah, that's coming out uh, October 9th, and it's through University Press, and it's called uh, Seeing Jesus in East Harlem, What Happens When Churches Show Up and Stay Put. So uh, really excited about that. So uh, get your copy. You can get your advanced copy on Amazon or wherever books are sold. So Awesome. I think I gave a version of this precious moment a couple weeks ago, but I swam in the lake yesterday for my triathlon, Lake Michigan. Um, wow. Did you run it? The triathlon yesterday, or was this training? No, this is just training. So I, I think I told people that I swam in the lake a couple weeks ago. I don't remember. But yesterday I swam a mile, which was the goal. Woo. So wow, I wow. was really pumped. And the water is, like, really awesome right now. Like, I think I might, after I leave work, I think I might go swim again. Because it just, I love swimming so much during the summer. And the water is actually, like, 
refreshingly cool mm. um, before it, it is gets warm. humid today. Exactly. It is uncomfortable. This would be a day to go swimming for exactly. sure. Exactly. Exactly. Um, is that your strong event? I don't know. I don't think I'm like bad at it. I don't, I wouldn't say I'm, you know, like the thing about triathlon is there's always someone better than you in at least one of those things. Right. You know, um, I will say I was unprepared for how tired it was going to make me, you know, you have to bike 25 miles after that. So, oh, wow. <laughs> and then run six miles. I don't know. To be determined. You've done a full triathlon. Yeah. Though. Or awesome. international. Yeah. Apparently when wow. people say triathlon, they also think of like Ironman. I am not doing an Ironman. Yeah. That's hardcore. That's very hardcore. <laughs> that's real. Wow. I've done a third of one of those. I did a marathon once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So did I. But like to me, like I, you can't beat it. During the summer, you get to be outside, you get to be in the lake, and you get to exercise. I love all of those things immensely. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, and Richard Clark. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, which is where so many of you have left really kind and thoughtful reviews, and we are so appreciative of all of that. We are also available in most places where you get your podcasts. You can support the show by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.